1: We are uh, right now on our 10th talk in uh, the book of Revelation. We're still walking through the letters. Uh, today is the eve of uh, the feast of St. Andrew the Apostle and uh, in the Maronite calendar. And I had for you a quote from our Pope, which I thought was uh, fairly apropos. Um, this was uh, from a homily he gave um, during the 20th World Day Youth, World Day of Youth, the homily of the, for the vigil. Be not perturbed when you hear of wars and insurrections. The saints show us the way to attain happiness. They show us how to be truly human. Through all the ups and downs of history, they were the true reformers who constantly rescued, it, rescued history from plunging into the valley of darkness. It was they who constantly shed upon it the light that was needed to make sense. Even in the midst of suffering, of God's words spoken at the end of the work of creation, it is very good. One need only think of such figures as St. Benedict, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Charles Borromeo the founders of the 19th century religious orders who inspired and guided the social movement or the saints of our own day Maximilian Kolbe Edith Stein, Mother Teresa, Padre Pio in contemplating these figures we learn what it means to adore and what it means to live according to the measure of the child of Bethlehem by the measure of Jesus Christ and of God himself the saints as we said are the two reformers Now I want to express this in an even more radical way. Only from the saints, only from God, does true revolution come, the definitive way to change the world. And though it may seem that uh, we live in, in, in dark times, let us always call to mind that in all ages, God raised saints so that all generations may say his work is very good. Let us now turn to chapter three, verse eight and following. We were in the middle of studying the letter to Philadelphia. You know, one thing that the Book of Revelation will teach us very quickly is how to understand God's love. You may have heard said to you, or you may have said it yourself, many a times that God is love. The problem with that statement, though it is a true statement, is that if left alone, it is not well received. For if you say to someone, God is love, he may not debate with you the fact that God is love, but he will point out to you all that is wrong with humanity. He will say, how can you say that God is love when millions are dying of hunger, when there's AIDS, when there are wars and earthquakes, and all these problems... How can you tell me God is love? What kind of love this is? And that, my friends, is a very good question. That's the heart of the matter. It is one thing to say God is love. It is an altogether thing to be able to explain how God is love in spite of all these events. And the only cogent, intelligent way to explain that God is love is through the covenant. For only the covenant can embrace all of history, contain it, and give it its real meaning. Without it, you will be forced to say things, well, you know, uh, there is human freedom, man does these things, and, you know, poor God, what can he do? You kind of relegate God to the, set, to the, to the background and put man and his free will on the foreground, in which case... Who needs God's love? What kind of love is that? I think the the heart of the book of Revelation is precisely to show us how God is love. And never should we divorce His love from His justice for then our world become incomprehensible. We cannot comprehend it. And if we cannot comprehend it, we cannot help anyone see the truth. So I would say to you, beware before you say someone, "God is love." Be prepared to give a testimony to what you mean by those words. So we were in the middle of studying the letter to Philadelphia. Or verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. What kind of open door is this that he has put in front of them? Again, once more I'll re- I will remind you that the Lord is focused on their works. Not on how they feel, and not on how well they Um, they do certain social activities. It's their works that he's focused on. I know your works and their works are good because Philadelphia has no rebuke. He does not rebuke them. I have open, I I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What open door is that? One may think heaven. But if that's the case, how is that different from the door that he has opened for everybody else? By his death and resurrection, Christ opened the door, the gates of heaven. So that cannot be this door. Because that, the door of heaven was open for all of us when he, when he rose from the dead. So we have to let go of this notion that he opened for them the gate of heaven. It was open for all believers. Which door is this? Recall that Philadelphia was called the gateway to the east because of its position. It commanded a central position as a gateway to the east. Therefore, it makes a lot more sense to think of it as a missionary door. He opened before them a door which no one can shut meaning their missionary zeal will be successful and the missionary zeal of every church is rooted in their sanctity only saintly churches can produce missionaries who can be successful it isn't about having money you convert no one with money it's about saints It is the sanctity of Philadelphia that opens for them the route to the east where they can go and convert others and bring them to Christ. And that is strengthened by the next sentence. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that there are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you. The straightaway explanation that we may have upon hearing these words is confrontational. Somehow we think that God or Jesus is going to go to that synagogue and then grab them by their neck and drag them over to the church and then force them down on their feet and they will look up and say, yeah, you're the best. You won. You're number one. Because our images are often imbued by our own competitiveness. We tend to be Competitive, and so we think that Christ is competitive. But a far more important explanation is the one that is based upon conversion. The idea is, by your sanctity, even though the synagogue's door was closed to you, even though the Jews of the city have been persecuting you, have been acting as informant to let the Romans know that you do not worship Caesar, Even though all this is happening, I will bring the truth to them through your own suffering. So they will recognize that I have loved you. One person cannot recognize that Christ loves you unless they see Christ. Unless they're converted to Christ. That's the only way. The true way. And that's what's happening here. You've got to think about how much influence Philadelphia has without lifting a finger, so to speak. Philadelphia was a poor church. The Church of Philadelphia did not have financial means. They were persecuted. They had no reach, no power, no influence. Certainly no political influence of any kind. And yet, look, in truth... How much power they had. Far greater than any of the other churches who were richer, stronger, in better positions sometimes than they. Certainly Laodicea is in that camp. And if anything, this brings to my mind St. Charbel. Because St. Charbel fits this description aptly. Here is this one monk living up in the mountains of Lebanon. No one knows anything about him. He's got no internet connection to speak of. You can't even reach him by phone to begin with. He speaks an old language. His look is not particularly appealing. I mean, look at him. Right? I mean, That's not a good marketing job right there. I'm talking about that monk over there with this long white beard looking down. I mean, he's got nothing, if you think about it, to be able to do anything. To do anything. And yet today I'm told, I have not been there, but I'm told that in the Basilica of Our Lady of um, Guadalupe, there are two statues or two altars for saints. One is that of San Juan Diego, and the other is St. Charbel. And those of you may, who've gone there may confirm that. I have not been there, so I can't. You know, I, I have to rely on, on the words of those who told me. Uh, here, how could this one man have such a worldwide reach living over there on his mountain? The Church of Philadelphia tells us how. Each one of you, each one of you can have the same reach. Because it is Christ acting through his saints that makes everything possible. And of course, the most perfect example in the season of Christmas is Our Lady. What could a young 16-year-old girl in a small town that no one has almost ever heard of do? And here she is changing the face of the whole world. Don't judge yourselves or your actions or your works by what is seen through the eyes of the world. That is not the true worth. It is only through the eyes of Christ that your works take on their full meaning. Because you have kept my word, verse 10, of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, not of um, you know, strong zeal and conversion. Not of transforming the world. Not of political gains. Patient endurance. That's it. Patiently enduring. That's all they could do. They could do nothing else. But patiently enduring. Because they've done that, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world. First note, he says, I will keep you. He doesn't say, I will um, rapture you. He doesn't say, I'm going to put you out of this world. i put you in some little box out there. You're going to stay where you are. You're going to go through the whole thing, but I will keep you. Which, from the hour of trial which is coming upon the whole world. This same language, actually, is, is found in the letters of Peter. It's worth looking at uh, Peter, the, the second letter of Peter because it carries the same idea, perhaps in a slightly different way. You see in verse 3 of chapter 1, Read the following, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. So that this process of divinization we talked about in relationship to the Eucharist, right? Partakers of the divine nature. This is what this is all about. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Why is that hour of trial coming? Because through it God will sift the world, through it, God will help the world see itself as it truly is. And God will judge the world these three things will happen through that hour of trial that is coming. Notice also the urgency. It's coming soon. This is not about the end of the world. This is about events that will take place soon after these letters are read. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Again, if you flip back to the letters of St. Peter, the second letter, you read here the same idea where he exhorts his readers to do the following. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call in election, for if you do this, you will never fall. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The same idea, the same exhortation occurs both in the book of Revelation as it does in the letter of St. Peter about keeping what has been given, otherwise we may lose a crown. The crown that is provided for us, that is set for us in heaven can be lost simply if we do not hold fast to what we have received. All too often we can lose our place in heaven simply by neglect. Neglect alone is enough. Neglect of the things of the faith. That is why I advise you to be very watchful over any slippage you may have in your habits of prayer. Never allow yourself to slip, not even for a moment, and watch over every one of your habits, lest they lead you astray. If you were in the habit of signing yourself before eating and you stop, watch, watch out. Danger. If you were in the habit of controlling your eyes and you stop, watch out. Danger. Constant watchfulness is an absolute must for any one of us to reach heaven. This is how God wants it. This is how he decrees it in Holy Scripture. This is how the saints have always started. it. We must watch. He who conquers, I will make him the pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God, out of heaven, and my own new name. Now, these images of pillars and of writing may seem strange to our ears, and may seem disassociated one from the other. Why does he say, first, I will make him a pillar, and then he adds, I will write. So the first, he will make him a pillar, and then he will write on him. Why? As, as always in Scripture, the simplest questions tend to be the hardest. That's a very simple question. One that may not even occur to us to ask. Why is it that he speaks of pillar and then he speaks of writing? Could it be that he was able to actually speak of writing first and of pillars next? Would that change anything to the meaning of the text? Pardon? Yeah, but I mean, what's, is there any problem in the order, for instance? Writing first, pillar next, or pillar first, writing next? You see, unless, again, we are steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament the images themselves are not illuminated, they're dark. One thing that is important to understand, and this is something that a um, a writer by the name of Meredith Klein did a really good job at highlighting, the, the way the temple, the architecture of the temple works, maps or is correlated with the clothing of the high priest. In fact, there's almost a one-to-one correspondence between the two. Why is that important? Because, well, where do we find pillars? In the temple. That's where you find pillars. And where do we find writing that is extremely important? Where does the Lord write something on someone? Stone. Yeah, but that's, that's on the stone but on someone, on a person. On his clothing. On his clothing, but what, where else? Forehead. 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 of whom? The high priest. Aaron. What does he write on his forehead? Holy unto the Lord. Okay? Pillars? Writing. Once you understand that there is actually correspondence of imagery between the temple and the clothing of the high priest, you can see how you can pass from one to the other. So that corresponds. And you start to understand how these images work in their appropriate context. Because we don't understand them, we tend to ascribe to them a literalistic meaning. By this I mean that we imagine somehow God turning these people into pillars. So... On a very basic level of the imagery, we almost imagine them standing there, you know, holding a roof, the pillar. And then God is writing on them. That's the only imagery we can we can we can come up with because we don't understand the overall context. The overall context is the Old Testament and the temple. There were two very important pillars in the temple. Remember the temple, the 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 temple in um, court of the priest, you actually had the temple. And right in front of the vestibule, vestibule, you had the two major pillars of the temple. And the archway between them was called the shoulders. Almost like a man. The pillars and that archway. Those two pillars had specific names, which you find in the book of Kings. One was called Jashim, he shall establish. And so the left one was called Jashim, he shall establish. And the right one was called Boaz, God preserves. That's in the, in the first book of Kings, chapter 7, verse 21. 1 Kings seven twenty-one. So, he shall establish and God preserves. Now what is he going to write on them? He is going to write... Now, I'm sorry, before he writes, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. Never shall he go out of it. He shall establish, God preserves. Right? So he establishes them as pillars, and he preserves them, and never they shall go out of it. Those are the pillars in the temple. The pillars in the temple have a parallel with a shoulder, have a parallel precisely with... The, that piece that the high priest wears on his head, on which God wrote, Holy unto the Lord. So, by sliding from one image to the other, we understand that the writing that is on their forehead is a priestly writing for the purpose of service and for the purpose of giving glory to God. So, there is fluidity in the images. They're not meant to be literal, as in them, God turning them into actual pillars but they meant to convey something about the liturgy and the architecture, or rather they meant to be understood through the liturgy and the architecture of the temple. Now he writes on them three things. The name of my God. What is the name of my God? I am. right? Yahweh, I am. The name of the city is my God the new Jerusalem and my own new name. These are the three names he's going to write on them. right? The name of God the name of the city and his own new name. Don't know. If anybody has any idea I'd like to hear it. Don't know what he meant by the new name. No, no, no. His own new name. What is the, the, his own new name? Many, 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 many ideas are put forth. I have not found one yet that I'm wholly satisfied with. Don't know. But the overall under, idea behind it that comes from the high priest, wholly unto the Lord, is that what is written on them is the name of God, the Father, the name of the Church, and the name of the Lord. Therefore, they are confirmed in the church, for God the Father, by the Son. That is an idea that can be derived from the three names, and that is trustworthy. But as to the actual meaning of the the, the name of the Lord, I have not found any good explanation so far. If I do, I will let you know. I keep on on researching it. No, but what does he mean by the new name? I mean what, what is meant when the Lord says, My own new name? Okay. We know that the that the we know that the notion of a new name applied to us represents who we truly are. How does this apply to the Lord? I don't know. Now I'm not going to debate this. I just said that in case we have you know, if you have any insight, I'd like to hear it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The preservation here, again, is very important to understand, and not purely in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And that is perhaps one of the hardest things for all of us when we're dealing with the book of Revelation, or scripture in general, to think that God is more interested by our spiritual preservation than by our physical pres- preservation. We would like the first with the second. We would like the first with the second, which, if you really think about it, is irrational. Because what we're saying to the Lord is, Lord, I really want to go to heaven, that's the first, but I don't want to die. Which is kind of a little bit problematic. I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to die. Well, at least not right now. Not right now. You know, maybe later, when I'm ready. My way. I'll tell you how I want to die. I want to control how I die. Then, then, we'll, then we'll be fine. So you make sure you take care of heaven. I'll take care of my own death. How about that, Lord? That's the constant struggle we have is that we, won't, we don't want to let go. We don't want to let go from what we have or we own and especially we don't want to let go of our own lives. That's the hardest struggle for all of us but that's the, that's the crux of the whole matter is to let go. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, Laodicea, which is modern Hisar, the old fortress, was located in the Lycus Valley in southeast, southwest Phrygia at the juncture of two important imperial trade routes. One of them went from Ephesus south to and the other one went from Pergamum, south. And along the second road, you had some of those cities we already talked about. Uh, Pergamum, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then 40 miles down, you had Laodicea. Laodicea had two sister cities. Fairly close by, one was six miles away, Hierop- Hier- Hierop- Hierop- Hierapolis, Hierapolis. And the other was about 10 miles away, and that's the city of Colosha. And this is more known to us because of the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Laodicea is mentioned in Colossians, in the letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 14, 15 and 16, and Hierapolis in Colossians three, thirteen. Now to the south of, Colo- of Laodicea were mountains that rose up to a thousand feet. And because of that uh, geographical location, there were very fertile um, um, grounds around Laodicea, which, which then made Laodicea's prosperity. It was a very rich city. Because the, they had those fields, and they had quite a few lambs there, and then through careful breeding of those lambs, they were able to come up with a type of wool that was thought after throughout the entire empire. It was a black wool and was very much thought after. So they had manufacturing going on, which made them even richer. And of course, manufacturing attracted banking and then made them even richer. So they were very rich, very well established, comfortable. Additionally to all of this, they also had a faculty of medicine. There were medical research going on there, and they had come up with a um, with a salve used for eyes called the Phrygian salve, and that also was sought after in the entire empire. So it was a sort of a commercial hub, and it was rich. In fact, it was so rich that after... the the great earthquake of 60, whereas we've seen other cities requiring help from Rome to be able to rebuild themselves, Laodicea rebuilt itself without the help of Rome. And Tacitus, the Roman historian, attests to this. They had enough money, even though the earthquake hit them really hard and almost destroyed all of the city, they had enough money to rebuild it all on their own, without Rome's help. Uh, The city was uh, more likely founded by Antiochus II during the 3rd century B.C., and he called it Laodicea after the name of his wife, Laodice. And, and it was, in Roman times, the wealthiest city in Phrygia. Uh, by the way, that earthquake in the year 60 is one of the reasons why I think the Book of Revelation was written before 60 A.D. Because in 30 years, there is no way that in 30 years they would have been able to rebuild the city to the level of wealth it had before. It took them longer. All right, So that's why I think this book was written before. Now, geographically, there's a couple of other things you need to know about. Hierapolis, I told you, was six miles away from them across the Lycus River. And H- Hierapolis was known for one thing. It's baths. It had hot um, Um, springs that were known for their medicinal uh, properties. And the hot water would actually flow on a river and then over a a waterfall that was sort of one mile large and was all white because of the accumulation of of, uh, a type of rock So the the view was absolutely spectacular from uh, Laodicea. They could see that. But once the water hit bottom and flew towards them, it was tepid and nauseating. It had lost its, its warmth. Across from them, on the other side, you had Colossia, which was a city that is wedged between those mountains I just talked to you about. So what it was known for was its cold water. Very refreshing. Cold, hot, lukewarm. Oftentimes, um, you will see that the Lord talks to us right in the context where we live. He understands the context very well, and here is no exception. So, let's go through the the text. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would you that you were cold or hot? By the way, this is one of those misunderstood texts. People think when the Lord says cold or hot, he means cold as in you've rejected me, and hot as if you love me very much. So it's at the level of our intention. And so he'd rather have somebody apostatizing, or somebody being really jealous than someone in the middle. That's how we think. This is what we think this text means. But what I just described to you is actually quite quite the opposite. Colossia had cold, refreshing water. So if you're tired, you'd go there, they serve you cold water, they do you some good. Hierapolis had warm, hot water that would help in case you were sick. So in both cases, cold or hot refer to good works. You understand? Nothing to do with the intention. We bring it back the level of our intention. The Lord talks about the works. Colossia could actually refresh the weary and the tired. The Hierapolis could help cure the sick. They were doing good works. The guys in the middle were doing nothing at all. That's what he's after. You understand? So again, has nothing to do with oh well, you know, the Lord prefers the really hard-headed uh, guy who refuses him and doesn't want to talk to him and then swears at him over the one who stood sort of in the middle. Well, may, that may be so. I mean, theologically, I don't know if this is really a good idea. I, I've not really given enough thought to to make up my mind. But that's not what the text implies. The text is saying. You're neither cold, you can't help the weary and refresh the tired, and neither hot, you can't help heal someone. You're, you, you have no words to speak of. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. That's a pretty hard language, don't you think so? The actual Greek would have been better translated as vomit. I mean that's how strong it is. That's how strong that word is. That's pretty strong language. But if you think about it, it, it it is appropriate. I mean the Lord said it in the gospels many, many times. If you don't bear fruit, what do we do? We cut you know, the tree that doesn't bear fruit, we cut the tree and put it in the fire and it'll burn, right? That's it. That's, that's he's not saying anything different here. The language is maybe more striking, the imagery is stronger, but the idea is in the Gospels. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, pure, blind, and naked. All right, here we have to be careful because we can have the smug attitude of thinking, ha, the church of Laodicea, see, look at what state they're in. We're much better than that. We will never do something like that. What is the assumption here? The assumption is, if I were in Laodicea, I would have seen that I was pitchable, naked, and all those things. But these guys over there, they didn't see it. As soon as we speak this way, we haven't understood the sin. We haven't understood what the problem is. As soon as we raise our finger in condemnation, we've missed what the problem is. We don't see it. So let's slow down and think a little bit more carefully about what the Lord is saying. First and foremost, do you think that the people in Laodicea were just a bunch of smug, arrogant, um, snob people walking around and playing golf all day long? Do you think that's how they were? Do you think they would just wear those white, long Roman togas and then put some, uh, some crowns on their heads and then walk around reciting poetry? What kind of, I, what, how do you represent them? How do you represent them? How do you represent these people in their daily lives? What do you think they were doing? Well, going to work. Making good living, thinking about their investments, wondering how could they make a little bit more money? Living in one house in the city and wanting to buy a house somewhere else, investing in real estate. Does this start to sound a kind of an uncomfortable bell? Did you know they had retirement plans back then? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Cicero, who was one of the greatest philosophers of the Republic of Rome wrote that that he would want to go and cash his treasury bond in Laodicea. That's where he wanted to retire. Is this starting to sound a little bit more uncomfortable? Okay. Every Sunday. Do, do Do you start to see a little bit more? You had their students who wanted to go to the very famous medical faculty in Laodicea. You had people in banking, you had people in industry, you had people in agriculture, people who were inventors, people who were trying to improve on their trade, making it better. They were very active people. They had a good life. You had met them in the street, you thought, whoa, these people are really nice. They would have welcomed you in their homes. They will throw out a nice party for you. They're not they're not just a bunch of snobbish people full of themselves as we would define it. Do you understand? As a matter of fact, if we were to meet them and then maybe change the dress code a little bit and get them to say you know, cool and dude a little bit more or the equivalent of such words in Latin, we would feel very comfortable with them. Never make the mistake of thinking that these people are from Mars or some planet in the confine of the universe and they have absolutely nothing to do with us. Because then we miss the problem. The problem was this. The people of Laodicea were, by all accounts, good People. By all accounts, they were good people. They could not see what the Lord saw. Do you understand? They could not see what the Lord saw. Not because they didn't want to see. Not because they did not want to see. No. Because they were blind You can't blame a blind man for not seeing, can you now? He's blind. Do you see the difference between the two? It isn't that, oh, well, he doesn't want to see, therefore he can't see. It's his choice. No, 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 no. It's worse than that. They are blind. A faculty of seeing is not there. But it's not the physical blindness it is spiritual blindness. But they're blind nonetheless. And because they're blind, they simply cannot see their state. Now, if I were you, there would be one question on my mind right now. One question would be looming large on my mind. Am I blind? Am I spiritually blind? Let me give you a hint. If you answer right away, no. If you've answered right away, no, I'm not. You are. You are. If you've answered right away, yes, I am. You are. You are. Because you're hiding behind your own shadow. The only way to answer this question properly is to do what? Let the Lord answer it for you. You can't answer it. You can't hope to even begin to answer it. I can't. He can. Now, maybe you start to understand a little bit better that wonderful prayer of St. Augustine and his insight. Lord, Lord, let me know myself that I may know Thee. Let me know myself that I may not be he knew he knew what spiritual blindness was all about and most of the time most of us are blind most of us most of the time are blind and sometimes we wonder why is it that these people convert can they see and we get upset with them because they can't see they can't convert why are we getting upset because we're blind we're so blind to the truth of blindness that we can't see why a blind person can't see what we see now. Yeah, I made it way too complicated. Let me say it in a lot simpler ways. Most of the time, it is the sin in us that we see in the others. Right? That's what irritates us most in others. It's the sin that is in us. Because we see it through our own sin. So let's say we were not believers and then we became believers. Now we see. We need a friend who is not a believer. What do we do? We lose patience with him. We yell at him. We take him with a two by four. We want him to believe. How could he not believe? That's what I mean. We're blind. You see? That's one of the paradoxes. Yeah, and the only way to resolve it is through Christ. Because as long as I have my eyes turned on Christ, and I'm in this relationship of love with him, He's the one who shows me my blindness. And sometimes he shows me how blind I am, but he doesn't take the blindness away. Because by not taking it, he helps me grow in charity. Because when I realize that I'm blind, and I realize how hard it is to take away my blindness, what do I do towards my neighbor? I now feel for them. I'm not there banging, bang, you know, hitting them on their heads, and criticizing them. I feel for them. Okay? That's actually what the Lord does, if you notice. This is not about the Lord, you know, throwing um, uh, fire and brimstone on their heads. It's about showing Him their love. It's so interesting that He picks the most wretched of all the churches to show them His love. Note. Because you are lukewarm... Okay. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing... Not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, pitiable. Pitiable. Notice the word, pitiable. When I look at you, I pity you. And you're poor, blind, and naked. What brings about all these things? The fact that they say that they are rich. What do they say? I am rich. I have prospered, I need nothing. Rich, prosper, need nothing. And that's why the Lord is not criticizing them because they were rich and they prospered and they think that they need nothing. That's not what the criticism lies. He criticized them because they are blind to the truth. So, in appearance, it looks like they got what they needed. In reality, they don't. They're like a kid who ate three pounds of chewing gum and think he's satisfied. And the problem is that most of us are too weak to handle riches. But we don't know it because we're blind. We think, no, we can handle it. Of course I can handle it. I'll be the most generous person in the world. I'll be better than Mother Teresa. I've had all the millions of Bill Gates. I'll be giving them away to everybody what do I need with all these, you know, two billion or six billion or twenty billion dollars? All I need is just a couple million dollars and I'm happy. I'd be more generous than anybody else. We're blind. We're presuming of ourselves. We think we're better than the other guy. That's the blindness that eats at us. We don't even see it. But see, the Lord doesn't go about hitting them with a two-by-four. But in one sense, he does. I'll spew you out my mouth. But then he tells them, I counsel you. Notice, he's not there to, right now, send them to hell. He's not sending them to hell. What does he say? Therefore, I counsel you. Notice his humility. The king of kings is counseling them. Why? Because that's the most they can take. That's the most they can take. You see, the more blind we are, the less of the truth we can take. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich. To buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, the notion of gold refined by fire is found in Scripture elsewhere. So in Peter, once... In in, in the first letter of St. Peter, chapter 6, verse 7... In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? Gold refined by fire, same image here, is presented. But the question is, what, what does he mean by, I counsel you to buy from me? That notion of buying from Christ seems so strange. He doesn't say, I counsel you to go and get gold and refined by fire to test it to make sure. What does it mean to buy gold refined in, in fire from Christ? I believe, and I've read a number of commentators, but they can't seem to address this issue because they, they don't have the church. You see, this is a distinctly Catholic idea. Which, which is based upon the community of the saints and the intercession of the church.? Right? If you don't have what it takes, what do you do? You rely on those who do, right? That's why we offer masses for our dead. That's why we ask the intercession of the saints. That's why we, we ask our lady to pray for us. What are we doing? In a sense, we are buying gold, refined, and fire it's not our own gold that we're getting. It is the gold of the church that has been put there by the saints. It is the treasury, notice the word, this is the official word, treasury of graces that the church has, and the church can and does pull graces out of this treasury to give to the believers. That's the only theological theologically sound idea behind the word buying. Otherwise, it makes no sense. He's telling them, you're blind, you don't have what it takes, and I'm counseling you to come to me and ask for that which you don't have and which I have made available through my church. That you may be rich in white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Uh, It's sort of ironic, because as I said, they had, in Laodicea, created this very famous black wool. And here is Christ recommending that they buy from him a white garment. Now, of course, white is a reference to righteousness, to holiness, and we find that in Revelation all over the place. Um, I'll give you some references. Um, you know, three, th- chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 9. Chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 19, verse 14. This white garment is recurring, the notion of righteousness. But why does he say, white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen? Isn't that odd? I mean, isn't that city rich? It is. Didn't they have invented this black wool thing? They did. Do they need to be clothed? Do you think they need to be clothed? It depends. You see, Christ didn't say, Buy from me white garments to clothe you. That's not what he said, right? Because they're clothed. They have clothes on in a matter of speech. But the clothes they have on doesn't do one thing, which is what? To keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. To keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. So the clothes that they have on actually does what? The opposite. Make sure that the shame of the nakedness is seen. Now, of course, this is not a concept that we are familiar with. It is a very strange concept for our ears that somebody would wear clothes that reveal more than they hide, right? I mean, we don't know what, the, what he's talking about. Um, before I move on, I, I skipped one part that I'd like to go back to. In his, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in his salutation, he says, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, Amen is a really unusual title that the Lord uses, but if you think about it, it is a title that affirms His divinity. Uh, because by saying, I am the Amen, He says, I'm the one who upholds all things to be true. And that can only be God. There may be also reference here to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, which speaks of the God of the Amen. Amen. Um, Translated as God of Truth in the Revised Standard Version of the Catholic Edition. The other important point I'd like to make to you is this, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, it might be understood as Christ is saying, I am the first one who was created, because I'm the beginning of God's creation. But the English word beginning is hiding the Greek word arche. And arche has really three meanings that you need to be aware of. The first one, uh, theocratically, that is from the point of view of the reign of God, R.K. means pantocrator. That is the head, the first, the ruler. That's what beginning means. Genealogically, genealogically, it means firstborn. I'm the first. And eschatologically, it means ruler. So really, the beginning of God's creation is one of those most more explicit allusion to the pre-existence of Christ. Not to his presence in creation as the first thing being created. He is the reason for that creation. He is the one who rules creation. He is the one to whom creation owes everything. Now, can we confirm that? Sure. You can actually um, read it in the letter to the Colossians, which was by probably known in Laodicea as well, due to the closeness of the cities. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the beginning of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And that that is a passage where St. Paul is talking about the Lord. Very good. So, what we have seen so far is that in the city of Laodicea, you have a rich church that, by the way, doesn't seem to be perturbed by heresies. There are no Nicolaitans there, no people from Balaam, no Jezebel. Doesn't seem to be perturbed by the devil. The devil is, doesn't seem to be attacking them in any way, shape, or form. Doesn't seem to be perturbed by the Romans. They are at peace. They're wealthy, beyond measure. They feel that they have arrived. They got the status they want. There's no, there, are no, there is no struggle to speak of. And Christ points out to them that they are blind. And that blindness is preventing them from seeing the truth about their own state. And only through the gaze of Christ can one one see that blindness. Because it is spiritual. It requires someone greater than that blindness to be able to see it. And he counsels them in buying from him gold refined by fire that you may be rich and white garments to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. And then he adds salve to anoint your eyes. Why? So that you can see. And again, they are the city where they make that particular ointment that is used everywhere for the eyes. So they think they've made it. They've got everything they need. And he's saying, you need to come to me so I can give you the real thing, which you thought you had, but you don't. And then he adds, those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. So what I'm going to do next week is take up that last passage. It's very rich and has many references to the Eucharist. And then I will also want to talk to you about what we have learned throughout those seven letters and contrast that with some other passages we'll find in Scripture that is saying the same thing, but maybe differently. So that you can see also how the book of Revelation highlights and illuminates other parts of Scripture. So not only do we use the rest of Scripture, I'm talking about the New Testament, to understand the book of Revelation, but it also goes the other way, where in using the book of Revelation, what we've read, some passages, particularly the letter of St. Paul, become clearer. In the meantime, I really... Would recommend that throughout this week and throughout the whole period of Advent, you may take up take this up as a point of meditation in preparation for the coming of the Child Jesus. Lord, am I blind? Show me. Amen. So again, as as usual, we're going to have some um, fifteen minutes for questions related to this. Uh, to the stock? Yes. I don't know. The question is, who was the priest or bishop of uh, Laodicea? And the answer is, I don't know if Laodicea was part of the diocese of Ephesus, in which case it would fall under St. John, or if it was some other bishop who was there. That's a good question, but I don't have that answer. Yes. Good question. Um, the, 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 the question then is, does, is, are we automatically blind if we're rich? And if we're rich, does this prevent us from going to heaven? Well, the first point I'd like to make to you in relationship to the passage that you mentioned in Mark, where the Lord is speaking to the rich young man. To the rich young man, he said, only one thing you need. Go sell everything you have and come and follow me. But he didn't say the same thing to Nicodemus or to Joseph of Arimathea, both of which were rich. He said it. To the rich young man only, his was a special calling. So keep that in mind. Um, while it is true that the church speaks about spiritual poverty, it is none. It is. It is also true that the church has a preference for the poor, physically poor. Because whether we like it or not, material richness is an obstacle for us to reach heaven. Whether we, we want to hear it or not, being materially rich is more often than not an obstacle for us to reach heaven. There are examples of people who were rich and who made it to heaven, but in most cases they gave it up. I can think of Saint Louis, king of France. He was the king of France. He's a saint. His mother, Saint Cunigon, was the queen of France, and she's a saint. You do have examples of people who were very rich and who made it into heaven. But these are the absolute exception. One thing I would also say, poverty alone doesn't get you to heaven either. And abject poverty, meaning poverty beyond what is, what is even human. So for instance, in Haiti where you have, or in, maybe not Haiti, but in some other countries in Africa where you have mothers mixing sugar with mud to feed their children that is really poverty beyond what is human, actually may degrade you to a point where you harden your heart. So, the point is that these things, material riches, are a tool for us to do good with. But more often than not, when we have too much of a good thing, it corrupts our heart. Intentions are never enough. But that's the problem. The problem is, the question is, what if your intention is to become rich and wealthy so you can actually help build a church? The problem is that we are blind. We think we know ourselves. We think that what comes out of our mouth represents the truth about our heart. Most of the time, it doesn't. But we, because we are so blind about who we are, that's the problem they had. Most of them were full of good intentions. Actually, we have a saying in French, Maybe it's the same in English. Hell is paved with good intentions. Why? Blind. That's the problem. Oh, yeah, of course, if I'm rich, if I had a hundred million dollars, I'd give it all to charity. And I'm not going to be like all these other rich people who keep it all to themselves, because I'm better than they are. Blind. Do you understand? That's the blindness we're talking about. To think that what I say represents the truth about who I am. Lord let me know you, let me know myself because I don't know myself so then I will know thee, I will know thee. that's the intuition of Saint Augustine alright yes uh, Philadelphia in, in, in respect to what oh it's in the same area which is today would be considered western Turkey the whole, all of them are in the same area Asia Minor Laodicea, all of them in the same area, without about 60 mile radius from each other. Yes. So the question is, does this mean, therefore, that you should uh, never make money? Well, if you are like Saint Saint Anthony the Great, I would say yes. That would be the preferential treatment. If like if Saint Francis of Assisi, absolutely. So generally speaking, is the better road to heaven the one through poverty? Yes, 100 percent. No doubt about it. That's not me. That's the teaching of the church. That's the preferential treatment for the poor. All right? Yes. Now, having said that, God places us in different locations and gives us different talents for his glory. So, to your question now, does this mean I shouldn't become a doctor? I shouldn't try to be successful? For his glory. And that's where we lose ourselves. Most of the time, for his glory, gets dropped. So, as long as you have a prayer for life, as long as you think to the Lord, I don't care if I'm a rich or I'm pauper, I don't care if I live in in a palace or a tent, all I care is I have you. If I have you, I have all I need. Then, your heart is immune of the riches, they mean nothing to you. You look at them for what they are, a tool to help others to reach heaven. But when you're not doing that, and I would say 99% of most Catholics don't do that, riches become something we can't really handle. Like the ring in the Lord of the Rings. It becomes the thing that corrupts our heart. It's too strong for us. So I would say beware. Beware. Tread lightly when it comes to riches. Yes. Maybe, maybe not. This is a little bit about the health and wealth gospel. If you serve God, then God will make you rich. Well, maybe, maybe not. He won't. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. St. Joseph and Our Lady. They never built a church. They didn't have enough money to help anybody. They didn't build a hospital. They did none of that. Another example I just gave is St. Charles. It's not true that material wealth is the preferred way to help others. It is a way, but it's the worst way. It is the worst way because we can't handle it. Most of us, even when we give, have a problem. And we have a worse problem when we receive. Most of us have an easier time with giving than receiving. So, I would say that if we think that those with money are doing a greater good than cloistered nuns and monks, we better adjust our understanding. They are doing far greater good than all the money in the world. They're all one and the same, absolutely. But one has, how shall we say, a far greater effect because it is not as perturbed. Whereas when you have money in your hand, for most people, the giving is never as pure as we really would like it to be. I agree with you that it doesn't mean that, but all I'm trying to tell you is that most of the time, our hearts is Hidden from us. We think we see when we don't. That is the bigger problem. And, and when we are in that situation, we're in far greater danger when faced with riches than we think we are. That's what the problem is. So at the end of the day, the problem is not with the riches themselves, because they're good. God created them. The problem is with our blindness and our weakness and thinking that we know better. So as I said earlier, If a man is righteous before God and doesn't care, what he really wants is to be with God. If If it was up to him, he'd leave everything else and be in a room where he can be face to face with Jesus all day long. That's what his heart really yearns for. That man, therefore, is protected from the riches. And he can use them liberally to do God's will. Absolutely. Yeah, we should always help with the wealth we have. No doubt about it. Absolutely. All I'm trying to say is beware of the wealth. It isn't as pretty as we think it is. Yes? Well, yeah, I mean, but, but that's a kind of slightly different problem. The man is building a bigger barn thinking, I'm going to fill it up and then I can rest. And then God said, fool, your soul will be asked from you tonight. Right? And so you won't even profit from what you've done. That's one of the issues. But here the focus is, in relationship to riches, the fundamental problem of the human heart is that we are blind to ourselves we don't know ourselves nearly as well as we think we do. And therefore, we presume too much on our own strength and what we will do with the riches when God gives them to us. Actually, that's a very good point. The question is, should we then be striving for spiritual riches? And the answer is no. It's the same problem. Of course. Look, I'll I'll give you a simple example. It seems that what I just said to you is very strange, but it's not. Let me give you a very simple example. Let's say God gives someone the spirit of prophecy. He says something, it happens. Ooh. See the problem? Same, same problem. That's why actually Satan can tempt us. Once we move away from the material things, he can tempt us with spiritual things. There are things. That's what St. John in his writing, the ascent of Mount Carmel is so insistent on us being indifferent to everything, save to Christ. Do not seek the gift. Rather, seek the giver of the gift. Yes. Exactly. Christ gave them those talents and asked them to fructify them. For what purpose? For His glory. It's His talents. Right? They did it for Him. They did it full of zeal for him. When he came back, they gave him back everything. They were not attached to it. You see? The problem is that he gives us talents. What do we do when he comes back? What? Those are mine. <laughs> okay, look, look. I'll give you those eight. I'll keep those two. Alright? That's a good deal. That's our problem. You see? Those men... That's why they, he said, enter into the kingdom of my father. Well done. Why? Master, you gave me five. I'll give you back ten. No question asked. Right away. Immediately. I don't care. Why? I care about you. I did it for you. You see? That's what's not said. Us? Wait a minute. Well, this is done. Wait, wait, wait. That was not in the contract. You understand?
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com.